ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Like the rest of the Soviet Union, the Gulag was mobilized as part of the Soviet war effort during the Second World War. As my guest Wilson Bell explains, prisoners in the Gulag camps in western Siberia sewed red army uniforms, manufactured artillery shells, and constructed and worked in major defense industries. But life in the Gulag camps during the war was also extremely harsh, with mortality rates hitting 24% in Western Siberian camps. Nevertheless, prisoners had a myriad of responses to the war that reveals the Gulag as a complex system closely tied to the local, regional, and national war effort, to the point where prisoners and non-prisoners even frequently interacted. Wilson Bell is an assistant professor of history at Thompson Rivers University, where he specializes on the Gulag prison camps in the Soviet Union under Stalin. He's the author of Stalin's Gulag at War, Forced Labor, Mass Death, and Soviet Victory in the Second World War, published by the University of Toronto Press. I've also provided a partial transcript to this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast's website so you can read it. Now here's Wilson Bell. So your book, uh, Stalin's Gulag at War, Forced Labor, Mass Death, and Soviet Victory in the Second World War, it deals with a really little research subject, and that is the Gulag during World War II. It's always kind of referenced, but never really delved into too deeply in the history of the Gulag. So how would you, just to start off the discussion, how would you fit the war Gulag into the general history of Stalin's penal system? Yeah, that's a good question to start with. And I think uh, one thing that we can see by looking at the wartime gulag is uh, a better sense of the periodization of the gulag itself, because uh, you see a lot of tendency in the scholarship um, to talk about how sort of the the gulag kind of developed in, in the 1930s. Um, and then it's sort of formed people, you know, I think, um, uh, Anne Applebaum and others talk about the thirties as this formative period for the Gulag. And then, and then we have by the end of the thirties, this institution that we all know as the Gulag, but it's, uh, you know, I, to me, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because then you get the war, which is uh, incredibly disruptive time. Um, so we see uh, a lot of changes during the war, uh, you know, a lot harsher period because of the lack of resources um, and a lot of fluctuation in the population as prisoners are released to the front and there's a very high mortality rate. 
And, and so the war is, seems to be this very distinct period. And then we really only have this uh, seven year period, you know, seven, eight year period after the war um, uh, to, for the gulag to sort of re-stabilize and form. And that's the period when it actually kind of grows the most for a variety of reasons. So I, th I think if we, if we look at the gulag in sort of uh, different periods under Stalin, we, we really see a system that's kind of always in flux. It never really, it, it never really solidifies as one sort of institution that we can kind of recognize uh, as being a whole for the entire period. So, so I think I think that's one thing we can gain by looking at uh, just a specific uh, section. Um, and you know, and there is there are certainly scholars who've who've covered the war, but it tends to be covered more as you know a chapter in a larger in a larger book. So, um, so I wanted to uh, look at it in more detail. Do you think that the you know because the war is such a, a fundamental period in the transformation of the Soviet Union as a whole? Is it does it also play that function in in really transforming the gulag and the way it's say managed and who is in it and what are, what are the legacies of the war that make say the gulag after it different than say the gulag before it or does it really not does it go back to its pre war um, you know status no I don't think it does it's a difficult question to answer with certainty though because you start to see. So you start to see in the late 1930s a lot more, uh, say, operational orders coming from Moscow that are very um, clear about how the Gulag is supposed to run. So, uh, you know, what the regiment is supposed to look like, uh, what the, the Gulag is supposed to look like spatially. So you have this move towards a kind of more bureaucra bureaucratization and sort of more regimented rule-based uh, clear with clearly defined rules, uh, a system even in the late '30s, and I, I think, in some ways, the war, um, even though the war is very chaotic on the ground for the Gulag, I think the war really uh, um, sort of provides further impetus for this. Um, so during the war, for example, there, there's very little specific training of Gulag personnel that goes on before the war. There's one, um, one training facility uh, for Gulag personnel in the 1930s. Uh, but then during the war, you get a whole bunch more opening up. Um, so there's this sense that you need uh, a more kind of professional base uh, for your personnel. Um, and, and so I think you, so in, in that way, it's kind of continuing a trend from the late thirties, but, uh, but at the same time, I, I think the war is providing kind of a, a necessity to try to do some of these things in part, just because it's so chaotic and they're trying to figure out, uh, how to keep the system, uh, keep the system going. Um, so, uh, so, so that's one thing. Um, another thing, I think the war really is uh, is such a crucial time, obviously, for the Soviet Union. You know, it's facing this r true existential threat. We we don't know um, if the system will even survive, and and of course, Stalin's been in a way preparing uh, for war for a long time, um, and so so I think. The gulag then becomes part of this total mobilization for the war effort, 
which isn't that much of a surprise, but, but it's fully integrated into this mobilization process. And so I think because the Soviet Union is then ultimately successful, what, what you see with the war in the Gulag is um, there seems to be a kind of recognition that this total mobilization state works <laughs> right so so they they kind of instead of having a relaxation after the war ends it's sort of a doubling down uh, on that uh, total mobilization and the gulag is very much a part of that um and 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 then the war as well you see you see an expansion of um uh in a way, an expansion of institutions or a variety of institutions within the camps. So there's the, the they introduce um, the Katerga punishment within the Gulag, which uh, Katerga had been a uh, punishment under the Tsarist regime, sort of the strictest uh, exile, hard labor punishment under the Tsars. And in, in 1943, it's reintroduced in the Gulag um, as a kind of the, the harshest punishment for people who are supposedly traitors. Um, and so, so you get that element. Um, so uh, there are, you know, there are changes in the Gulag that then that then continue after the war too. No, no, we tend to think, or at least say, I'll speak for myself. I tend to think. Um, and that the gulag is a kind of uniform system, you know, that's mostly modeled like the archetype is like, you know, camps in Kolima or something like this, right? That, you know, when we read like Shalamov and, and, and other, you know, writings, memoirs about the gulag. And, and we, we, I think there's an assumption that, uh, you know, the, all the camps are similar to that, but, but as you point out, um, the gulag encompassed a variety of different levels of penal systems and, and hierarchy. And and you focus and you say that your your book, the first study to look at the corrective labor colonies. So what are these corrective labor colonies, and how do they fit within the hierarchy of the gul of gulag institutions? So the the gulag, depending on you how you define it, <laughs> you can you can include a lot of uh, different types of. Uh, institutions related to incarceration within the gulag system um, the gulag itself is just an acronym for main camp administration so this is the bureaucratic body that runs uh, the camp system um, and it's really in charge of uh, what were called corrective labor camps uh, corrective labor colonies and through the 30s and the war it's also it also runs the special settlements, which were exile settlements for peasants uh, and then uh, sp specific ethnic groups uh, starting in the late 30s and, and into the war. Um, so, so we have those three institutions. Um, uh, often scholars will include the, the prisons in the gulag system as well. Um, it was relatively uncommon to be sent to a prison after sentencing. Uh, this did happen, but for the most part, once you were sentenced for, to a crime, you were sent to a corrective labor camp or a corrective labor colony. Um, the prisons were generally used as basically remand prisons. So you would be in, in prison until 
uh, until your trial and sentencing. Now, even within the corrective labor camps, though you have a variety of of punishments, you know, you'll, you will have strict regimen camps and light regimen camps, uh, and these can look very different from one another. So, um, so for example, a, a lot of the lighter regimen camps don't even have, um, you know, barbed wire fences or any type of border. Um, you're basically just told as a prisoner, you know, not to go beyond uh, the zone, the camp zone, which is the space of the of the penal camp. Um, so, so those uh, might have a much, um, you know, a, a much lighter regime um, in terms of what's expected of you. Uh, and then the stricter regimen camps will be will be more like we might stereotypically think of a concentration camp with, uh, you know, watchtowers and and barbed wire and guard dogs uh, and so on. So, so you have a variety there. Uh, but one of the more one of the most interesting things about focusing on the corrective labor colonies. Now, my book covers both, but but uh, Western Siberia, where I examine, had uh, uh, you know in terms of the sort of camp subsections that were there. Uh, about half of them were, were designated corrective labor colonies and the other half corrective labor camps. And the colonies tend to be in the urban areas. They're technically for prisoners with sentences of less than, uh, fewer than three years, three years or less. Um, and so, so they're supposed to be kind of a lighter regime for, for the prisoners. Um, They'll often look similar to the camps. You might not be able to distinguish them aside from their sort of urban uh, environment. Um, uh, but, but one of the fascinating things uh, to look at when uh, examining these colonies specifically is that they actually appear to have uh, a higher mortality rate, at least during the war, uh, than many of the camps, which is not something you would initially expect. Um, you know, you would think the harsher camps, the, the Kalima camps or the, you know, Vorkuta or Norilsk, you, th you would think these camps that are above the Arctic Circle um, in very remote areas might have the highest mortality rates. Um, but when you actually look at the uh, statistics we have available, it turns out that it's often the corrective labor colonies um, in, in urban areas uh, some of the uh, agricultural camps as well in the more southern areas uh, that actually have the highest uh, mortality rates. So, um, so then there's a you know a question of of why of why this is the case, uh, and we can get at that a little bit by studying uh, by studying these corrective labor colonies. Um, and the one other thing I, I think I should say about the corrective labor colonies versus the camps is that on paper, they're, they're very different from one another. On paper, the corrective labor camps have prisoners with longer sentences and they're in more remote areas, uh, while the corrective labor colonies are for you know, prisoners uh, with short sentences. But then if, if you look at available statistics, it is true that the camps tend to have more 
uh, of the uh, Article 58ers, the, the so-called political prisoners with the really lengthy sentences, and the colonies do tend to have more of the um, uh, you know prisoners with shorter sentences, you know, six months, a year, this type of thing. But in both institutions, the largest number of prisoners is in that middle range, the sort of uh, three to five year and five to 10 year um, sentences. So in both institutions. So the actual differences I think are, are shouldn't be, um, you know, we, can, we could exaggerate them perhaps if we just looked at what's there on paper. Another aspect of this uh, relationship between the corrective labor camps and the corrective labor colonies is the mortality rate. And uh, we had, I think, long assumed that things would be sort of better in the corrective labor colonies. They were not in remote areas, uh, so theoretically should have better access to goods. Uh, and, you know, people were on there under lighter sentences, shorter sentences, um, under light regimes. So you would expect kind of better conditions. But then what we see when we look at them in more detail is that mortality rates are actually higher in these corrective labor colonies um, and also some of the agricultural camps than they are in the really remote camps uh, like those of Kalima or uh, Vorkuta. And if you, if you look at the war, uh, the gulag reaches its peak mortality rate, at least according to official statistics, in 1942 with around a 24% mortality rate, which is uh, horrific. Um, but you look at somewhere like uh, Vorkuta or Kalima, and they're reporting much lower mortality rates, um, you know, 12% range is you know still very high <laughs> but uh, but mu but much lower than than the average and so the question is who's bringing up the average well it it, it seems to be these uh these corrective labor colonies and and some of the non-priority camps so siblog in western siberia was a non-priority agricultural camp and and they're complaining all the time about receiving unhealthy contingents of prisoners while the healthy Engines are being sent on to other camps, um, and it's the same. And it's the same with the corrective labor colonies in the region. They're 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 complaining about having to send their healthy prisoners to priority camps while they only get to keep the um, the unhealthy prisoners. Oh, I, I was going to say that to kind of put the explanation of why that there's higher mortality rates. Uh, in the corrective labor colonies is because they're shifting the more healthier labor force elsewhere. That's right. They seem to be uh, prioritizing certain camps in key sectors like, you know, coal production in Vorkuta, for example. Um, and they don't see um, uh, agriculture as a priority during the war. Uh, you know, and resources are already stretched so thin Um I think that's part of the reason too. So, um, so they have to prioritize where where resources are going. But that ends up, of course, uh, on a fundamental level, killing a lot of people. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so it's interesting to look at. And and I don't have good or consistent data, I should say, for the whole year or for the whole war for these corrective labor colonies uh, in, say, Novosibirsk or in Tomsk. Um, but what you see in 
kind of statistical monthly reporting is uh, reports that will say, you know, how many prisoners are at, uh, say, for example, the, the Krivoshekovsk uh, subcamp, which was in charge of um, uh, munitions production in, in Novosibirsk. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, for the month of March, uh, we had this many prisoners, uh, you know, X, X number of prisoners, Y number of prisoners died, and that was about 4% of the population. And, and, you know, and that's just in one month, say. Uh, and so if you're losing four, three, four, five percent of your prisoners per month, which is what these subcamps are reporting, you know, on a yearly rate, uh, on an annualized mortality rate, that would be a considerable, considerably higher than the, than the 24 percent. So let's let's take a step back and um, and talk about how did the gulag develop in Western Siberia. The first camp in the region uh, is modeled on the Solovetsky camp. The the uh, Solovets- Solovetsky camps of special significance. They were originally called in the 1920s uh, in the Solovetsky Islands. Um, and th- these are the camps from which the sort of archipelago metaphor for the gulag gets its name. Um, and so uh, in the 1920s, there was a forced labor component, although that wasn't necessarily the main purpose uh, of those camps. And so uh, the Siberian camps of special significance, uh, Sib Ulon, uh, was founded in 1929, even before Gulag itself existed as a bureaucratic body, um, and this uh, this comes comes to be known fairly quickly as Siblog, just the Siberian camp, basically. And it's involved in in all sorts of economic activities in the region, um, from uh, agriculture to uh, coal mining in the Kuzbas and. Uh, you know, all sorts of uh, forestry and so on. And it, and it initially encompasses camps stretching basically all the way from Omsk uh, to Krasnoyarsk. So this like, enormous, huge territory. <laughs> uh, um, and then as, as uh, Siberia is administratively divided up over the course of the 1930s, you also get this uh, Siblog being divided up uh, administratively as well. Um, and by the mid-1930s, it's very clear that Siblog really is, is kind of an afterthought from central authorities in Moscow. It becomes one of the larger camp systems, uh, but they never include it in their lists of uh, priority camps and priority projects uh, for, for the Gulag. So, you know, those might be, say, uh, the building of the uh, Baikal Amur Railway in the Far East, or um, the Moscow Volga Canal, or these types of projects, but Siblog doesn't have one of these these kind of um, big infrastructure mobilization projects, uh, and, and so it kind of gets ignored to a certain extent, and and I think becomes one of these camps where they send uh, unhealthy prisoners, or or maybe where you know, Siblog's kind of in the middle of the Soviet Union. So, you know, when prisoners are going across, they kind of take the unhealthy ones out and send the healthy ones on. And does it does it also include a lot of special settlers from from decolonization? Yes, that's right. So, so Siblog is in charge of the special settlements uh, 
in the region, the kind of gulag authorities in the region are also in charge of the special settlements. And this is one area where you can see Western Siberia as kind of a key site of Stalinist repression in that um, Western Siberia is one of the main uh, destination points for uh, the special settlers. Uh, And many of them, and it's interesting if you look at the uh, uh, relationship between the locations of the special settlements and the camps and regionally, the special settlements tend to be located in much more remote areas of the region, uh, like like Narim, which is kind of downstream, so north uh, in the north of the region. Um, while while the camps are located pretty close to population centers for the most part. There are a few remote ones, but mostly close to population centers. And I should say there are some special settlements as well uh, in the in the Kuzbas, so, you know, in these coal mining areas and forestry regions sort of more southerly. Um, but a lot of them are in Narim, and Narim becomes kind of a synonym for the special settlements in a way. So by by the beginning of the war, about approximately how many prisoners are in the camps in Western Siberia as a total number? Uh, at the beginning of the war, um, it's a uh, I'm not honestly not remembering off the top of my head, but but the the prisoner population is is fluctuating, uh, usually somewhere between in the region between about sixty and eighty thousand prisoners uh, in the region, um, really through through the war period. There are a lot of releases, but Siblog and, the, and, the, and then the corrective labor colonies in the region are also receiving a lot of prisoners coming in, evacuated prisoners from, um, from the European parts of the Soviet Union. So, um, so Siblog uh, itself actually uh, goes down in population, but if you look at sort of the region as a whole, we see the prisoner population uh, increasing uh, over the course of the war, uh, which compares to a decrease for the Gulag as a whole. So, so I think the importance of Siblog is, is and, and the regional camps are enhanced uh, during the war relative to the entire uh, Gulag population. Hi, dear listeners. I just wanted to give a big thanks to those of you who answered the call in my patron pitches in the last few episodes. Not only have people dedicated some of their hard-earned cash to the show, I've also gotten an offer of in-kind services and a few emails of appreciation. The SRB podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also want to say shame, shame on the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. So please think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. Become a patron. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog and donate $5 or more a month. If you have some in-kind services you'd like to offer in terms of graphic and web design, please get in touch. And if you're short on funds, you can always write a review on iTunes and share the show on social media and with your friends and family. Once again, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. And if you're not supporting, it's not too late. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog and donate $5 or more a month. 
Now on with the show. So uh, you make a really interesting statement when you're talking about the development of the Gulag in Siberia, and that is you write that the Gulag appeared to be an, an attractive solution to two long-standing questions in Russian as opposed to specifically Soviet history. What were these two long-standing questions that the Gulag appeared to be addressing? Yeah, so uh, part of my part of my goal in in looking at it this way is to connect connect the Gulag to a, a longer history because I don't I don't think it necessarily just comes out of the blue and. Uh, the two questions that I'm, I'm thinking about specifically in this case uh, relate to, um, you know, essentially Russia's size and geography and the location of its natural resources, uh, as well as uh, its uh, attempts to kind of control the population for in, in order to access, in a sense, some of these resources or, or wealth. So, um, so one question then is, is you know, the, the question of how, to, how do you access remote um, resources in such a large country in, 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 the, in these harsh climactic conditions often? Um, and then also the, the uh, peasant question uh, is is a big one too. So um, you know this is a, this is a very long-standing question for for Russian rulers. Is uh, you know the majority of the population is uh, the peasantry, and the the labor of the peasantry is needed for uh, producing the the wealth of the country. Um, you know whether that's agricultural labor under serfdom or factory serfs and, and to an extent that they develop um, various mining industries and so on. And so uh, it, it's interesting to me that the gulag then is using uh, largely peasant labor. I mean, there, we, we tend to think of the gulag sort of uh, before we study it, we, we tend to kind of think of it as a place where these kind of political, intellectual prisoners were sent and they could, um, you know, recite poetry to each other and whatnot uh, to you know, try to retain a sense of themselves. And, and, there, and that's definitely one gulag story. But, but, a, but a big gulag story is that, you know, a lot of these waves of prisoners into the camps uh, are actually peasants. Uh, you know, they're, they're people who resisted organization. Uh, and they, they are um, people who are rounded up in the, in the cities under, you know, uh, as sort of socially dangerous elements once you get this kind of chaotic um, uh, five-year plans and industrialization. Uh, and so, you know, a large number of the ordinary prisoners are really from the back, same background as, as say, uh, the serfs had been, um, and and I think the the gulag then is is so you, you've got this dual element where you know it's very hard to make labor attractive in some of these remote uh, areas, uh, no matter what kind of campaign you run, and so it becomes. Uh, it, it appears to be an easy solution in a way to set up 
prison camps. You're, you're having more and more prisoners because of the chaos of collectivization and industrialization. Um, you need these resources, you need the timber, you need the, the gold, you know. Um, and so, so the prisoners then appear to be a kind of attractive labor force in a way uh, to access uh, some of these remote uh, remote resources, or even uh, to a degree, right? Resources that aren't that remote, but but are uh, um, you know the all along the Trans Siberian, it's fairly sparsely settled. <laughs> so uh, you know, aside from some uh, some keys, um, and then there's also with this those cities and town key projects of the first five-year plan is this uh, Urals-Kuznetsk combine, they call it, which is uh, taking the, the coal from the Kuznetsk basin and the, uh, and the iron and so on from the Ural Mountains and, and creating this, um, I don't know, kind of joint venture almost where you have then the uh, development of uh, these big steel plants, for example, in Magnitogorsk, getting their coal from from Western Siberia, from the Kuznetsk Basin. So, so even though these areas are already already somewhat developed, uh, um, you need large numbers of people there, and and they just can't get enough uh, through um, uh, less coerced methods. Uh, certainly, large numbers of of non-prisoners there, but then you also then get prisoners and special settlers uh, and so on. Uh, are they very deliberate? I mean, in, in terms of the, the the expansion of the gulag in the 1930s, is the the need to develop and harness the natural resources of the Soviet Union is that part of the conversation for as part of expanding prison labor in, in the gulag? This is an important uh, chicken egg question, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and a while ago, um, James Harris in an influential article uh, showed how some of the bosses in the Ural re Urals region during the first five-year plan, you know, started kind of requesting prisoners as a way to help them fulfill uh, plan goals. And so, so, so part of his argument, I think, was that it was, uh, you know, the sort of need to fulfill these plans uh, gave a kind of economic incentive to send more prisoners. Uh, and but it's, it's hard to know for sure. I mean, it does seem it does seem like the influx of prisoners really catches most gulag officials off guard, uh, and, and NKVD officials, for that matter, uh, they were not they were not planning for a system that was going to be uh, this big. Um, in fact, the you know the plans and the or even in the in, even in 1930 are for a relatively small system from what we can gather. And so, um, so you get this uh, you know chaos of I, I think in particular collectivization and decolonization. You know what what uh, uh, Lynn Viola and others have termed a kind of war against the peasantry. Right. And, and that war ends up in a way taking a lot of prisoners. Right. And, the, and, and these prisoners are essentially the peasants. And then and then, well, 
what do you do with them? Um, well, let's you know, let's put them to work. Um, so, so there there might be a bit of both there, but but I tend to see I think the development as being a bit more reactive, um, in the sense that Gulag authorities seem very unprepared for these. Um, uh, in, you know, the influx of prisoners uh, at, at a variety of times over the course of the 1930s. And, um, you know, they, they're they scrambling to build infrastructure and, you know, they often, they often aren't until the prisoners are there and it's the prisoners themselves who are doing it. So, so you know, it doesn't, it really doesn't seem like it's, it's planned per se. Uh, it's sort of pl- planned uh, on the fly, if you will. The Soviet Union has been preparing for war uh, throughout the 1930s, uh, and then the Nazis, of course, invade in, in, in June 1941. So um, how was the Gulag um, mobilized for war? What role did the, the, these camps that you studied play in the war effort? Yeah, um, one important thing to remember is that the uh, sort of Stalinist defense planning and uh, was – was part of industrial Stalinist industrialization, I think, from the beginning too. So, so you know, they wanted to create factories that could be convertible to wartime production uh, relatively easily. And, and in a sense, you know, a lot of the language, even in the 1930s, as as other scholars have pointed out, is very much about uh, sort of. War, mo- war mobilization language, even in the 1930s, right? You have a grain front or, or you know, and so on. So, um, so in a sense, the, the kind of linguistically or rhetorically, there's this almost like there's this mobilization for war even before it begins. Uh, but you actually start seeing a, a, a sort of shift in production uh, even before June 41, in Western Siberia, in in some of the camp, uh, in some of the camps in the region. Um, so, uh, uh, for example, uh, you know, the one of the larger subcamps in the region is uh, is a garment, sort of textile garment uh, factory uh, that had been sewing. Um, uh, you know, just clothing, basically. But they they start sewing Red Army uniforms uh, even even before the war begins. And this is partly because you know you have you have the Winter War with Finland going on. You have the Soviet, um, basically the Soviet annexation of of Eastern Poland and and the Baltics. Um, and and so so you have you already have a kind of partial mobilization of the Soviet military for these efforts and and, and the camps in the region start to shift even before June of 41 but then what happens in June of 41 you get basically every every camp is then every subcamp in the region and uh, you know is is then geared towards uh, military production of, of one sort or another. So uh, whether it's Red Army uniforms, um, there's this, uh, um, it had been sort of a juvenile correctional colony in Tomsk that had made musical instruments of all things, and it shifts to a munitions, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's producing artillery shells, basically, uh, almost immediately. Um, what it, and that's taking some of the evacuated um, 
uh, factory material from the West and then reconstituting it in Tomsk at the site of this musical instrument factory. And so that they're producing artillery shells. You also have, um, you also have uh, a lot of um, sort of direct military production in, in other areas. So there's a, a large uh, uh, corrective labor colony in Novosibirsk that is helping to build the uh, Shikalov um, aviation factory, uh, which, which ends up uh, producing a lot of the Yak uh, fighter planes uh, for the Soviet armed forces. Um, and and the, uh, the largest camp Subcamps in the region are actually in this, this sort of uh, uh, Krivoshekova region of Novosibirsk, which is the, on the, the, the left bank of the, the Ob River. Um, and it's this massive comp combine 179, it's called. It's this massive defense complex with, you know, with multiple workshops and factories and so on. And, um, and so uh, gulag prisoners are, are working in construction in this factory, building it, but then also they're working, a lot of them are working in the workshops uh, themselves and sometimes you know alongside um, uh, free workers and, and it's interesting to see some of the kind of chaotic mobilization process too so uh, you know in in uh, August of 41 um, Oh, no, actually, I believe it's uh, early September of 41, uh, Kapayev, the director uh, of the camps in the region, is, is asked to, um, you know, send uh, 5,000 prisoners to work in Combine 179, and he's sort of given very tight deadlines for, um, uh, for these prisoners to appear. Uh, then, you know, basically in the documentation, a month later, later, he's admonished for not doing enough to prepare Combine 179 for these prisoners, right? And he had, he had basically no time. Um, but then if you follow the document trail a little later in December of 41, he's then criticized because uh, uh, basically he has to move these, these prisoners out because uh, some demobilized army soldiers are going to come in and and stay in those very barracks that the prisoners just in. So you have this interesting overlap, uh, you know, that basically the demobilized army soldiers are going to the gulag, although it's no longer called the gulag because the prisoners move out, right? Um, so, but And where they go is a little unclear. So again, we're talking about large numbers of, of prisoner workers without probably proper living space uh, once that happens. Um, and, and one other point on uh, kind of army mobilization or military mobilization, um, most of the agricultural production is then uh, geared towards helping the food supply of the Red Army. And, and this, is, this is clearly uh, at the expense uh, of prisoners, too. So. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting to have uh, uh, prisoners, you know, basically building munitions. Um, so, so it, it begs the two questions. One, one is, you know, how did prisoners respond in terms of the war? And I'm sure their responses are, are varied, but, uh, you know, what is your general, the general sense of the response? And were there any security concerns on the part of the camp administration in having, you know, um, prisoners build munitions or even build planes or anything that's going to the war effort? 
Yeah, it's it's a very good question. Um, there is, you're right. There's a very uh, there's a varied response from prisoners, and and it's a little bit hard to gauge. I should say, I think in part because Siblog and the regional camps weren't priority camps. Uh, we don't have a lot of memoirs directly from prisoners who spent a lot of time uh, in the region. Uh, so that does make it somewhat difficult from the memoir literature. Uh, but in the in the memoirs that we do have, we, we see a, a wide variety of responses. So, you know, we see prisoners who, who want to be released to help fight uh, uh, against Germany. Um, we see some concern from some prisoners about family members who may be still in European uh, Russia. Um, uh, there's one, for example, who, who's very concerned about her family in Leningrad. Um, we see we see a worry about how it might mean worsening conditions, and, and that seems to be correct. Um, the authorities, I think, try to shape the prisoner response too. So you you had you had in the 1930s there had been these kind of um, propaganda campaigns almost about reforging prisoners into Soviet citizens, and those kind of um, uh, dwindle a little bit in the late 30s. But they seem to be rekindled in the war, not so much in in terms of trying to talk about reforging individuals, but in terms of talking about playing a part in the uh, Soviet uh, war effort, right? This is this, this kind of existential threat. And um, so you get a lot of propaganda around the heroic exploits of ex-prisoners, uh, the idea being that these uh, prisoners in the camps will be inspired by that. Um, and, and it is true that a lot of prisoners are sent, or you know, are kind of released and sent to fight uh, on the front, um, so so yeah, a wide variety of of prisoner uh, responses, and then I th I think as as conditions really deteriorate quite quickly, what you see is it, it becomes very much about a, a kind of survival mode for most prisoners who um, uh, really are not. Uh, able to get enough uh, food, and and so um, there's this one uh, prisoner. Uh, Aline is his last name, who works in a couple of the defense factories during the war, and and he he almost he almost describes it as a kind of war of all against all, <laughs> sort of very Hobbesian uh, situation in the in the regional camps um, during the war. And what about the security issues? Yeah, so um, it's interesting to see. So a lot of the literature about the camp personnel, you know, talks about them as being kind of indoctrinated um, to see the view the prisoners as enemies. Um, and, and we certainly, from what we can tell, we can see some of that here. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the camp personnel don't particularly talk about the prisoners in the regional camps as as enemies, um, and and how do I know this? Um, one of my main sources on the personnel is these uh, Communist Party meeting minutes uh, for the Communist Party organizations within the Gulag. So the Gulag administration, of course, would have some Communist Party members, not a lot, but some, and so they would have their meetings. Uh, and keep minutes, and and just like other Communist Party organizations, they would have a control commission to investigate, you know, infractions. And so we get a lot of reporting about the personnel 
uh, through these through these party documents. And right at the outbreak of the war, you can see in these meeting minutes, you can see uh, some uh, people calling for vigilance because uh, you know they're because the the camp personnel are also dealing with enemies. You know, it's not just the Red Army. Uh, we are as well. And, and you see some of that right at the outbreak of the war. Uh, but I didn't notice very much of that afterwards, uh, except in the cases of, of some of the uh, um, uh, ethnic groups deported to the region in the war, like the Volga Germans, where, where there does seem to be this uh, worry. Although the Vol- Volga Germans end up getting employed in large numbers in the defense industries uh, anyway. So, so I don't there, there might have been some concern, but it didn't stop. Um, it didn't stop the uh, the use in the defense industries. Wow! And t- talk a bit more about the personnel, because you know this is a, a topic that that historians have only been able to touch on because of the access of, of documents. And you know, running a camp in the middle of Siberia, as with a lot of these camps, in a way was a, a kind of punishment in and of itself. So, what do we know about the personnel and in, in, who ran these these large institutions? Right. I think I think we still know very little uh, about the camp personnel. Um, you know, we don't have a large number of firsthand accounts. Um, there are a couple out there. Um, uh, but but there's there's not a large number, so it's very difficult to get a kind of um, uh, you know intimate account of what it might have been like uh, to work for the gulag or work in the gulag as a as a personnel as a member of the personnel. But um, uh, one one thing I try to argue in the book, based mostly on these uh, communist party documents for the gulag, is that there's really nothing particularly extraordinary about about the camp personnel they they tend to be um kind of the same demographic often as the prisoners themselves there's there's very there are communist party members um but but not all that many a lot of the personnel are are say uh, you know demobilized soldiers perhaps during the war or or perhaps uh, you know um even prisoners who have uh, stayed on often without choice after their sentences have ended and, and, and they're working in the camps now as so-called uh, civilians. Um, so, so it's, it's a, the whole question of the personnel is, is largely a kind of gray area, I think, in, yeah. in terms of uh, how we situate them. Uh, and then even if you look at the, at the Communist Party members, who you might expect to be kind of the most vigilant and dedicated, uh, even there, I think we just see, you know, these people who kind of look at it almost as as an ordinary job in a way. I mean, I mean, these, these party meeting minutes are, you know, they're talking about who to send to what party conference and, uh, you know, what roles they should play. And, and, and prisoners actually come up relatively infrequently. Um, and, you know, and then, and then if you look at the control commission reports, that's where you see prisoners coming up because they're kind of admonishing party members for, drinking with prisoners or having uh sexual relationships with prisoners uh or or let or letting prisoners you know taking some prisoners into a into a local town and sort of letting them do what they want and and you know the, the, these types of things so so you kind of you you kind of see 
party members getting uh, reprimands for this type of of activity. But to me, that 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 type of activity suggests uh, a bit of fraternization there. That you know that they don't necessarily see the prisoners as uh, as kind of uh, subhuman. Um, now there are certainly uh, accounts of uh, abuse, um, both in the prisoner memoir literature and in these meeting minutes. You know that would suggest uh, a kind of uh, dehumanization. But but for the most part, um, you, 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 I didn't see that as often as I was expecting to see that. I guess I could put it that way. And now one of the things you, you, you say that's, that's quite, I think, really, um, you know, something that I didn't know uh, and isn't talked too much about as far as I know of in the literature, because we assume that these camps are, are, always, are isolated from the general population. But you, you state that in Western Siberia, um, you had a lot of fraternization and integration with the surrounding population. So, so how did the gulag prisoners and the camp administration interact with the society outside the camp? Yeah, and and this is one reason I wanted to look at the uh, at a camp system that was in an already kind of established area. So you know these cities uh, like. Tomsk and Novosibirsk um, didn't start as gulag cities. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, Alan Berenberg's work on Vorkuta is, is actually a, an incredible book and brilliant for showing a, a lot of the interaction between prisoners and non-prisoners in, in Vorkuta. Uh, but in Vorkuta, you're also talking about a city that kind of starts in a way as a gulag city, or that's at least right. what, what makes it grow. And so... Um, so you might expect some interaction there, but, but what's interesting to see in, in a place like, um, like Western Siberia is that, yeah, there, there are really all these, all these points, uh, uh, of interaction and some of them are illicit, um, and some of them are, are quite kind of ordinary within the camp system. So. For example, there's a, a subset of prisoners, um, and Alan Berenberg talks about these prisoners as well, but there's a subset of prisoners who are uh, called deconvoyed prisoners who are allowed to go outside of the camps on a pass, essentially, um, with unguarded outside of the camps. So, so of course, they could, they could do things that they weren't necessarily um, – you know, supposed to do <laughs> on that pass. So there's reports of them uh, going and watching movies, for example, or or taking on mistresses in, in the in the in the towns. Um, and certainly, and certainly, they were helpful for prisoners for smuggling things in and out of the camps. Um, um, so, so that's that's a point of interaction. Um, another interesting point of interaction is actually in a lot of these urban corrective labor colonies, say in these workshops workshops in Convoy 179, for example, some of these workshops, you have prisoners and non-prisoners working together, you know, in, in the workshop. So, so there might be a, a prisoner barrack and a worker barrack, um, and the prisoners might be escorted to the workshop by, by guard. Uh, but then when they're there, they're, they're working you know they're working in this facility with with non-prisoners. So again, there's there's points uh, points of interaction um, interaction there uh, that are very interesting. 
Uh, and and one of the more curious points of interaction I've noticed, and this is some in some of the uh, agricultural camps in rural areas. Um, and I actually don't remember if I noted this specific example, but you actually have authorities complaining about locals coming into the camps, and and in the phrasing, it's uh, people who have nothing to do with the camps. <laughs> coming into the camps and using camp facilities like the medical facilities or the bathhouse in, in the camps. And, it, and it's suggestive of, you know, maybe in some of these, you know, small, near some of these small villages that the, the camp actually had a more developed infrastructure than, than the village, right? And so you, so you actually have uh, villagers coming in uh, to use camp facilities, and the authorities are kind of like, "Well, how can we how can we stop this from happening? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what should we do?" So, so you know, there's a variety of points of interaction, and, and of course, personnel personnel have incentive to um, to help uh, facilitate some of the black market activity and the smuggling of correspondence because you know they themselves aren't aren't paid all that well, and they're in a remote area some of them where they don't want to be and and so um you know it, it's fairly easy it seems to bribe uh the personnel um and and they'll play a role in some of this and and in any and sometimes even work with prisoners to help smuggle things in and out in the beginning of the book you say that one of your main arguments has to do with the informal relations and the way the camp is administered but also just the way the you know, life is in the camp. There's a lot of the stuff you just spoke about these interactions. Do is this a big part of the informality of the camp system? Yeah. So, so one one point I try to make in the book is that um, you know the the gulag, and I think I mentioned this uh, in a previous question. You know, the gulag on paper becomes much more kind of professionalized. You start to see a lot more very clear operational orders in the late 30s and, and then into the war. There's a lot more direct training for personnel. And so so it becomes the sort of modern bureaucratic institution on paper. But then on the ground, when you look at how things operate, it really seems to operate through informal networks. So it's, you know, it's who you know, who you have connections to. And this is just as true for the prisoners as it is, I think, for the, for the personnel. So uh, a lot of things are, are done informally and, and um, goods are obtained informally. And I guess the question then is to what extent do those informal practices undermine the gulag or to what extent do they actually help it help keep it together to a certain extent, right? Like it, it wouldn't work perhaps without, without a lot of them. So, um, so yeah, so, so it, it is interesting. And these, and these include black market activity and, 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 uh, and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Was the Soviet victory in World War II also a victory for the Gulag? Uh, I think so. And, and I don't mean that in a, in the in the case of the gulag, I don't necessarily mean that in a kind of positive way. Um, I mean, obviously, I think right Soviet victory in 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 the Second World War is is crucially important. Um, you know, they bear the brunt of the Nazi uh, attack and and um, play obviously a very crucial role in in defeating Germany in the Second World War. Um, but I think what happens um, is. Uh, uh, I think one reason why we see a kind of entrenchment of this 
of forced labor total mobilization in the post-war period is because the uh, Stalin and the leadership look back and, and see that their system worked, right? They look back and see, okay, we, we started with total mobilization, um, you know, with our first five-year plan, uh, and, and we then, uh, you know, ratcheted that up during the war, and, and it worked. Um, we, we knew we were going to face war. We knew this would be an existential threat, and, uh, and we survived. And, and so, so there's kind of a, a, a reinforcement, I think, in, in the mind of Stalin. Um, and, and this is mostly just coming, you know, through, I suppose, circumstantial evidence rather than his words <laughs> but uh, but you but you see you see that uh, um, you know they kind of in a way double down on the gulag in the in the post war period up until up until Stalin's death which which I think is why why you can call this kind of Stalin's gulag because it's really associated with uh, you know the, the the huge growth is associated with his uh, five year plans and collectivization and then. And then the decline of the gulag, if you will, is, comes after his death. So, so the 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 real yeah. the, this real sort of period of total mobilization that the gulag is part of, um, almost like a almost like a you know a 20, uh, 23 or whatever it is twenty four year period of total war almost right is 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 associated with with Stalin Stalin himself, and and so I think I think Soviet victory. Uh, to, for Stalin, the sort of Soviet system means total mobilization, and you can't really relax. You can't really relax from that. Um, so, and, and finally, um, what what is the a memory of the Gulag uh, in wartime? How does it fit within the general memory of World War II today? How does how does like you know? Because as you know, a, a lot of the memory of the Gulag is still a contentious subject in in Russia today. And in, as is the war, the memory of the war. So, how do these two memories fit together, if at all, in, in today's Russia? Yeah, um, to me, this is uh, this is in a way uh, part of the, I suppose, the tragedy of the of the Gulag at war. So, um, you know, you have almost one million prisoners or former prisoners mobilized to fight in the Red Army. You have uh, Gulag prisoners producing. Uh, you know, grenades and artillery shells and airplanes and so on, and it's mostly unrecognized, right? That contribution—it's—it's yeah. it's not part of the uh, official narrative. So it's tragic in that sense. Um, it's also, I think, tragic in the sense that uh, if you look at Western Siberia, the mobilization of non-prisoner labor was was much more effective <laughs> than 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 prisoner labor. So that's a, that's another story. Uh, but if, if we look specifically at memory, it, it, I, I find it kind of a, an interesting topic because you have, um, you know, you on the one hand, right, you have Putin uh, along with the uh, patriarch of the Orthodox Church uh, dedicating this monument just um, last year, I think, right, to, in Moscow to the, you know, to the victims of um, 
Stalinist repression, uh, you know, a prominent monument in Moscow, and and you have uh, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who sort of made the study of the Gulag part of the school curriculum, um, and and you have this now this large Gulag official Gulag museum in in Moscow, which was kind of the, a long product of both non governmental. Uh, of non non governmental organizations, but then eventually with governmental support, and so you know, so that's sort of suggestive of of an official memory of the Gulag. Um, um, and but at the same time, then you have uh, uh, non governmental organizations like the Memorial Society that you know periodically face some kind of harassment it usually goes away but you know from either you know for for accepting too many perhaps accepting too many foreign donations or some kind of tax issue um but uh but so 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 there seems to be an attempt perhaps to kind of uh control the memory of the gulag in some way and in what way is not entirely clear um and and i think this is an area where researchers are starting to really do some interesting research so um so for example there's um uh probably mispronounce her name but jujana bogomel who's sort of looking at the um the role of the orthodox church in the memory of the gulag because so many you know so many church uh, Orthodox clergy were were um, arrested and so on, and spent time in the gulag. And so, and, and part of Putin's, you know, one of Putin's pillars of support is really the Orthodox Church. So, so there's room for there's room for that narrative in in the memory uh, of the gulag. Um, now, how it relates to the war, which of course is this really um, key. M- moment for Putin, I think, and the kind of collective memory of Russia today. Um, uh, and so uh, it, it, that's that's also, I think, a little bit uh, tricky. Um, there are reports, and I haven't been there myself, but the uh, the Perm 36 Museum, which was really the first and, and most prominent Gulag Museum um, in Russia, um, you know, just uh, in 2015, it was kind of re. It closed down for a little bit and then reopened. And at least from reports that I've heard, um, it it now uh, focuses a lot more on uh, you know kind of a glorification of Stalin. But it actually does have a bit about the Gulag's role in World War II uh, as being important for the war effort. And it actually tries to situate the Gulag in this sort of narrative of, of, of Soviet victory. So, so there, so there may be room for it there, but, but, but at least from the reports I've heard or read, it's, it's more in a kind of propagandistic way as opposed to um, a kind of critical analysis. That was Wilson Bell, an assistant professor of history at Thompson Rivers University, where he specializes in the history of the Gulag prison camps in the Soviet Union under Stalin. He's the author of Stalin's Gulag at War, Forced Labor, Mass Death, and Soviet Victory in the Second World War, published by the University of Toronto Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, 
Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Minor drug offenders fill your prisons, you don't even flinch All our taxes paying for your wars against the new non-rich